My name is Susan Brink, and I'd like to welcome you to the Jazz Journalist Association podcast, The Buzz. My guest today is author Aidan Levy. He has written a book on Sonny Rollins called Saxophone Colossus, The Life and Music of Sonny Rollins. Aidan, welcome to The Buzz. Thank you for having me. So you've written Dirty Boulevard, The Life and Music of Lou Reed, and you've been the editor for Patti Smith on Patti Smith, Interviews and Encounters. What brought you to Sonny Rollins? I've always been a jazz musician and jazz listener, first and foremost, going back to when I was nine years old and I started playing the saxophone. So the honest truth of how I ended up writing on Sonny Rollins is really that I came back to my first love for this book project. To be honest, working on rock biographies or within rock criticism was a more of a departure for me. I first became aware of Sonny when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, and the album was Saxophone Colossus. Hearing it, I would say, changed everything. That's how it started. From there, when I got out of college, I began doing freelance work for some different outlets. The first one was The Village Voice. My first story was on a concert series in New York called Search and Restore, which was run by a guy named Adam Schatz. And at the time, a, a friend of mine from college named James Donahue, and we used to play music together. It was a and, great uh, series. It was a great series. And one of the next pieces was on Revived Alive, which was the series. And it would also had editorial content. And it's just the whole world that was brought into existence by the late, great Megan Stabile. So it started with that. And then I wrote quite a bit for Jazz Times and some other places. Yes, as, as you mentioned, I did these other books. I wanted to read a comprehensive biography of Sonny Rollins, but there didn't seem to be one in existence. So in 2012, I had the opportunity to interview Sonny for Blue Note Records when I was writing editorial content for their section called Spotlight, which was being edited at the time by Phil Freeman. It was just so inspiring and moving to talk with Sonny for an hour or so that I started looking even more deeply in, into his life and career and his music, listening to everything, reading everything I could find. And I must have read every book that was out there on Sonny. And I got a lot out of every one of them. There was Eric Nissenson's book, Open Sky, a book called The Cutting Edge by Richard Palmer. There's the beautiful photo book by the great photographer John Abbott and Bob Blumenthal, also called Saxophone Colossus, Portrait of Sonny Rollins. And if anybody doesn't have that book, please get it. It's just a gorgeous book. You know, I saw the documentaries on, on Sonny, Saxophone Colossus by uh, Robert Muggy and Dick Fontaine has a couple that he did, which are also great. But I was hoping to read something that was, like I said, a comprehensive biography of Sonny Rollins. I wasn't sure if I would end up actually doing this myself, but a few years later, I was talking to the brilliant jazz scholar, Crane Gabbard, and I mentioned this idea to him that I was thinking of applying for a fellowship at the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the CUNY Graduate Center. And did he think I should apply? 
And he said, oh, absolutely, you have to apply. So when, when Crin said that, I just said, okay, well, I guess I'm applying for this. The first thing I did after that was to reach out to Sonny through his longtime publicist, the great Terry Hinty, and mentioned that I was thinking of doing a book that would be a biography. I didn't want to pursue it if Sonny was opposed to the project or didn't want to participate in any way. And surprisingly, he said that he was fine with my working on a book and that he would be able to participate in some form. From there, I did apply for the fellowship. I did a couple interviews, one with the late drummer Joe Harris. I wrote a chapter based on extensive research on the tour of Europe that Sonny took in 1959, his first European tour before he began the bridge sabbatical. I wrote that and submitted the application and figured that would be the end of it. But a few months later, I got a call from Gary Giddens, who was running the center, and he offered me the fellowship. So that was exciting. I think I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> and I knew at that moment, I guess I'm going to be writing this book. How will I do it? Yeah, that, that's how it started. And seven years later, here we are. Seven years. That's a long time. For someone just tuning in and doesn't know who Sonny Rollins is or The Bridge, do you think you can give a quick overview? <laughs> sure. Well, I would start by saying Sonny Rollins is the greatest living improviser. He is a tenor saxophonist, composer, civil rights activist, and environmentalist. He was born in Harlem on September 7th, 1930, and grew up in Harlem and then in the Sugar Hill neighborhood around such jazz luminaries as Jackie McLean, Gil Coggins, Walter Bishop Jr., Arthur Taylor, many more. He soon met Miles Davis, and they were fast friends and performed together and recorded together. He also was mentored by such figures as Babs Gonzalez, Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, and performed with just about anybody that you might be interested in from jazz history after, let's say, the 1940s, but also people from the swing era as well, people who bridged the swing era and bebop. So Coleman Hawkins was an early influence, and Sonny waited outside Hawk's door at his apartment building in Sugar Hill so that he could get his autograph signed. He had a headshot of Hawkins, and Hawkins did show up eventually at his apartment, and he got that signature. Many, many years later, they met in a recording studio at RCA Studios and recorded the album Sonny Meets Hawk. Sonny also performed and recorded with the Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet. Then after that period, went out on his own and made such iconic albums as Saxophone Colossus, Way Out West, Night of the Village Vanguard. Uh, we have Sonny Rollins Plus Four, Tenor Madness with John Coltrane, The Freedom Suite, all in about a three or four year period, he did all of this work in the mid to late 50s. At that point, when he found himself at the top of the heap and everybody was saying he's the greatest tenor saxophonist of his generation, he made the surprising decision to step away from the jazz scene and he vanished from sight. Nobody knew where he was. And it turned out he was on the Williamsburg Bridge playing for up to 16 hours a day working on himself and his craft. Sonny, at this point, focused on changing the public perception of jazz from something that many in the public thought was associated with vice or nightlife, let's say, 
he wanted to focus on his political commitments and his spirituality to make sure that jazz was a force for good in the world, for positive change. And when he was on the bridge, then he really worked on his emotional, intellectual and spiritual development, in addition to practicing more than anybody to ever do it. From there, he came back in late 1961, and he was known for these periodic sabbaticals. So he made a string of albums for RCA Records in the 60s on the most lucrative contract, I believe, that up to that point an African-American musician had ever had. And that was through the great producer, George Avakian, whom I interviewed for this book when he was 98, and he was still sharp as a tack. He took a couple more sabbaticals. One was in India, and then he spent some time in Jamaica and some other places. He spent a lot of time in Japan. When he returned in 1971, he really never took another break. This was in part through the support of his wife and manager, Lucille, an amazing figure in the music. And he performed consistently and recorded for the next 40 years until he retired about 10 years ago due to a diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis. Sorry for the long-winded response. It's hard to give a brief overview of Sonny Rao. It's impossible. I mean, and when you say he played with everyone, you mean everyone. He played with the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. So your book is 770-odd pages? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. That includes, I think, the index. But what I found is it is so readable. It was a pleasure to read. Thank you. That that was a goal, was that if it's going to be this doorstop of a book that has now been described as a whopper in, I think, two separate reviews, that people would at least be able to read it. I don't know if it's a whopper, but it's, it's definitely comprehensive and there's a lot of facts, but it's not dry. It's as far from dry as could be. It's readable and it's enjoyable. I found myself smiling and laughing and nodding my head and learning more about this amazing musician. Thank you. So it's a wonderful feat. Now you published this on Hachette? Yep, uh, Hachette, which is a conglomerate publisher based in France. How did that come about? The initial contract was with DeCapo, a legendary publisher known for so many jazz books. And I was really excited to have a book on DeCapo, but I'm really excited to have it on on Hachette Books, which is essentially DeCapo. So what happened is basically Hachette acquired the Perseus Books Group and DeCapo is an imprint of them. DeCapo has now been absorbed into Hachette Books. It's mostly the same people. So you didn't go through an academic route. Right. I did consider going the academic route because I I also am an academic. Right. But yeah, no, this book was with Hachette and they were really passionate about the project and I just got a a good feeling from them. I'm interested in how you decide. Is, Is it a decision between going academic or going commercial when you publish something like this? I think it's worth considering because... You may reach different audiences, uh, not necessarily though. There may be a difference in distribution. My opinion here is that it's always important to go with a publisher that seems to understand your vision for a book and who seems enthusiastic about it. Seems like they'll support what you're doing and make the book better instead of just making it a completely different project. Of course, with an academic press, you also have the peer review process, which can be invaluable It can also be challenging to contend with. 
incidentally, with this book, it went through a kind of peer review. So some people did read the manuscript prior to publication, one of them being Lewis Porter. Professor Porter is wonderful. Yes, Professor Porter is a fantastic musician, scholar, and human being. And so I got all these different perspectives on the manuscript before publication. You don't always have so many readers through a trade publisher. Like I said, I really think it just depends on whether the publisher and, and authors see eye to eye. And you get a sense of it pretty fast in my experience. So yeah, that's that's ultimately why I, I made that decision. I'm happy with Hachette and that they're the publisher for the book. It was great to work with Ben Schaefer at Hachette Books, who was previously at DeCapo. It was a good experience. Of course, also, if you write a, a book, especially one like this, and you spend seven years on it, and you know, some people spend longer on, on biographies, but if you spend that length of time, the vast majority of the time is just going to be you on your own working at your desk or just sitting in an archive, collecting thoughts and thousands of documents. It's nice when you spend all this time with a project and then you first share it with your publisher and then you can share it with the world in some way because there's a lot of anticipation when you're just sitting there with your own thoughts wondering, am I insane? <laughs> and and it's wonderful that Sonny Rollins was agreeable to this. Did you get to speak with him often? We spoke periodically over the years. I'm so grateful to have his participation in the project and Obviously, he's Sonny Rollins. So, I mean, it, it was really just the honor of a lifetime to be able to speak with him and connect with him. I got some handwritten notes, but mostly we had conversations about the book. And then after the manuscript was finished, I sent it to him in this the thickest binder I could find because, you know, this was before it, it was in galley form. So he had the long version of the book, which was, uh, believe it or not, a lot longer than the finished version. I think it was a little bit overwhelming to go through all of it, especially when he was the subject of the book. But what we ended up doing was going through the entire book just with my telling him what happens in it and him responding, making additions. And that was really beneficial to finishing this project. And it was a complete draft, but getting his input after finishing a draft really added certain key details, I think, that I'd never heard before. And, you know, that no one, it seems no one had ever heard before, at least. Yeah, we had a series of conversations to go through the entire book because it, it, took, it took a long time to go through everything. And I'm sure his, with his permission, a lot of doors opened and a lot of materials were made available to you. Well, some of the materials are publicly available. For instance, Sonny's archive is at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is in Harlem on 135th Street, only a couple blocks from where Sonny was born. And when I started this project, I knew that this archive would become available to researchers, but I wasn't sure when. Fortunately, it opened up only a few months before my first child was born. And I must have been either the first or one of the first researchers in there. Our call seeing Gerald Horn there, too. He had a great book that he put out that incorporated some material from the archive. Yeah, I just went there every day and I had managed to go through the entire archive, which is staggering and colossal. 
uh, must have something like a hundred thousand documents, depending on what you might call a document. That was overwhelming because I had heard there's not that much here. And when I went, I was, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> how will I make it through all of this? I mean, it's it's breathtaking. But there was this question of just how will I get through all of it? How will I store the files so that I can figure out where they are later? And that is accessible to the public. Anybody with a New York Public Library card can go in there and look at the Sonny Rollins papers and the recordings and the video and the moving image and recorded sound collection. I, I had heard about this from Matt Snyder, who processed the archive. There's another individual who helped with that named James Goldwasser. You know, I'm just thankful to everybody who was involved in that as well as Chris Calhoun, who, who represented that archival collection. I mean, it's, it's it's really one of the most amazing jazz archives that there is because Sonny kept so much. And then after Lucille became his manager, she seemed to keep almost everything. So for documenting the life of a jazz musician, it was truly unparalleled in my experience. There are a couple other archives that are similar. The first one that comes to mind being the Max Roach collection at the Library of Congress. I mean, if you haven't seen that collection too, and, and you're interested in looking at some of these archival materials, see the Max Roach collection. That was another key source for this book. And Max Roach is another person who saved everything. We're talking toll receipts anytime the Brown Roach Quintet bought new ties. There would be an invoice for that, a record of that. Every contract. It's wonderful. All of his writings and Sonny, Sonny's archive, it's the same thing. So it's not like they were only speaking through their music. They also kept records. They also are writers themselves. It, it was really a thrill to be able to put so much of this in the book. And it all comes through. And thank you so much for being on The Buzz. The book is Saxophone Colossus, The Life and Music of Sonny Rollins. I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo! Toodaloo!